Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This is the second episode in our little mini-series we're doing on electronics. So if you're just tuning in now, we encourage you to go back one episode and listen to our first one, which was all about human rights in the electronics industry, which might be... You're not going to be surprised. I don't know. There's no clickable, like, whatever you think, it's probably worse. (laughs) So go enjoy a listen there. Kristen's going to tell us about the environment now. Woo. Yeah, I think it's also important to go back to the last one just because we we explained some of the basics around electronics in that uh, episode. So if you've ever wondered what's in a smartphone, go to part one because we tell you. But let's talk about the environment. Most of the carbon emissions that come from things like smartphones, tablets, and computers are actually from like the manufacturing of uh, the products themselves rather than like their distribution use or end of life. So a lot of um, what we talk about in this episode is going to be focused on that. Um, There are definitely ways to reduce your um, like your energy use when you're using a phone. I don't really talk about that. Everybody leaves all their devices on all the time anyway, but like, I guess if you turn off your computer and stuff, that's like, that's energy saving, you should do that. But that's also a lot more straightforward. So I'm going to focus more on where the big uh, environmental impact comes in, and that's from production itself. And that's because it's not just um, CO2 emissions. Um, Producing electronics also involves really high levels of hazardous chemicals, um, and it also involves a lot of water use. So just to give you an example, uh, the average computer uses about 240 kilograms of fuel, 22 kilograms of chemicals, and 1,500 liters of water to produce. And if you're talking about making a microchip, it requires 16,000 liters of water, 1.6 kilograms of fuel, and 0.7 kilograms of chemicals. So the like invisible footprint behind our goods is quite a lot. Why so much water? Are you going to tell us? <laughs> I'm not going to talk too much about water use, but um, but it, the short answer I think is just from mining. Mining takes a lot of water, and that's actually um another way to think about the footprint of a product is to think about the volume of invisible waste that's created throughout the production process and. Um, I have a couple of figures for that too. So producing a typical smartphone requires about 86 kilograms of invisible waste. So if you think about how much a smartphone weighs and the fact that it's generating 86 kilograms of waste to create that, then think about a laptop and how much that weighs. And producing a typical laptop um, also generates 1,200 kilograms of invisible waste. So holy shit, holy shit. Yeah. And to put that in context, um, I mean, we shit on the beef industry a lot in this podcast, um, but <laughs> the invisible waste of a kilogram of beef is only four kilograms of waste. So, Only, only, only four times as much as the actual end product. But <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's still a lot, but it's not as much as a laptop. Um, and a pair of cotton trousers produces about uh, 25 kilograms of waste. So these are much less than electronics. And you might be wondering... Why is the volume of invisible waste so high? Um, And the answer is uh, because of the waste produced in mining the raw materials. So going to talk about mining in the environment. That'll be a lot of this episode. 
but we'll talk about e-waste and stuff too um, at the end. So um, mining, I suppose it won't be that surprising to anybody that mining is not great for the environment. Um, it also produces quite a lot of waste. Um, so I thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about like what happens when you're creating, like if you're going to mine something, like what happens? Because to me anyway, that was a pretty like mysterious, mysterious process, you know? So the first thing that you have to do if you're like looking at mining something is like you explore to see if the ore has anything in it. And this can actually be pretty harmful to the environment itself because um, you have to undertake like exploratory excavation. So you've got to dig stuff up or like drill into the ground. And you also have to clear um, areas of land to like bring heavy vehicles and stuff like that in. So you're already destroying some of the environment just to kind of check out if there's something that you want to dig up. But then if you decide you're going to create a mine, you have to develop the mine. And that involves like basically clearing the whole area um, of vegetation and things like that. And it can be quite a large area depending on the kind of mining that you're going to be doing. And um, you also have to clear area for roads and stuff like that. So then you start an actual mine. And there are a bunch of different types of mining, but I'll talk about two. Um, the first one is underground mining, which is... I think kind of like what I think about when I think about mining, um, you know, like go underground into shafts and things like that. I don't know if that's what you think about, but. Yeah, I think about canaries. And also <laughs> I think about all of those like old timey stories, like a little princess and stuff like that, where people are in the mining business and that's how they make money. And it's like those old colonial age <laughs> stories. <laughs> not that we're not still in the colonial age, but you get it. Like yeah. everyone had their hand in mines back in the day. So I think of it as like, old timey, even though it's obviously very much still a thing. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, um, underground mining is the one with tunnels. Um, and it's the one with canaries as well. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they still use canaries, but it's, it's the one where canaries would be applicable. And then the other, the other major type of mining I'm going to talk about is what's called open pit mining. And this is, I've written here, this is basically just digging a very big hole. <laughs> I'm sure people in the mining industry would tell me that it's much more complicated than that. But um, it's the one like, if you see like quarries or whatever that are big pits, like that is open pit mining. It's well named. Um, it, it can also be called surface mining. And the difference between those two, um, underground mining typically uh, doesn't produce as much of an environmental impact, um, although it depends on how well you operate it. Underground mines are also a lot more expensive, so companies don't like to do them, um, but they're sometimes necessary to reach like deeper deposits. If you're trying to mine something that's like shallower and less valuable, you're probably going to use an open pit mine um, because it's cheaper to just like dig a big hole than to create uh, like an extensive set of tunnels. Um, so those are two of the main types. There are a couple of other types that are used, but not super often. So. Or they didn't come up at all out in my research, so I don't want to talk about them too much. So when we were talking about that, like, invisible waste, part of the reason for that is that most mining operations involve a huge quantity of just ordinary rock and soil that you have to remove in order to get to the kinds of um, ore that you actually want. Um, and that poses a bit of a problem environmentally because sometimes these, like, ordinary rocks contain pretty significant levels of toxic substances. And we'll talk about what happens with those a little bit later. But once you've actually gotten the ore out, um, the next thing you have to do is to actually grind it up and separate the metal from like other things that you don't want in a process that's called beneficiation. 
there was a lot of detail on how beneficiation works. I won't talk about it. But basically, depending on like how this process happens, um, it produces different kinds of waste products. Um, so could be like waste rock dumps, it could be leach materials, um, or it could be something called tailings, which um, you and I are both from Alberta, so we've heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> so tailings are basically just like they're the waste, um, but you'll often see um, in Alberta, there are lots of tailings ponds around like um, petroleum areas. I'm sure it's true for mines as well. Um, but basically, they like ponds with like toxic shit. Like they're just ponds with like leftover rock that you that you've separated from your ore. And it's really important because um, like the tailings can like really fuck up the environment, especially when it's in like a liquid form. Um, so you have to manage um, you have to manage these tailings. Um, either you can store them in tailings ponds um, or you can dry the tailings and um, dispose of them as backfill. Or you can also dispose of tailings um through a submarine process that I didn't really understand. Uh, <laughs> there, there are different processes to deal with tailings. Um, the best one is usually um, is usually drying them out because um, the biggest problems that tailings cause are to do with like them leaking into the weight, like the water and the environment around them. And if they're dry, they don't do that as much, you know. So yeah, environmentally that's preferred, but uh, tailings ponds are a lot more common because they're cheaper. So you'll see a lot of tailings ponds. All right, then once you're done mining, once you've gotten all the stuff that you want, you have to close the mine. Um, and that's actually where most of the environmental impact can happen if you're not closing the mine responsibly. Because like once the mining company leaves, um, you can have a huge amount of impacts. So mining can be super wasteful depending on the method and the deposit. I'll just give you an example. If you're trying to get a single ounce of gold out of the earth, um, it can create up to 91 tons of waste. For one ounce of gold. Whoa. Yeah. And like that is on the higher end of the waste, but it, it gives you a sense of like, you're wasting a fuck ton of rock. Like if you're producing a little bit of this like valuable material that you want. So as you can imagine, like digging shit up from the ground entails environmental risks. <laughs> and it entails environmental risks of all kinds, <laughs> basically. So the first one is to water resources. So one thing is that once you've like excavated a bunch of the like rocks, um, if it rains and, it, and when oxygen is exposed to these materials, you can create acid, which is not good. And that acid in turn can start dissolving other contaminants and like letting loose other stuff that you don't want and forming this like acid drainage. <laughs> and that can have a huge impact because like just on its face, that impacts water quality. But secondly, um, once you have that start to happen, it can continue basically indefinitely and it can be virtually impossible to stop. So, yeah, you don't want acid. At, like, generally, life does not like really acidic things. You know, it can fuck up fish. <laughs> it's not great for animals or humans. It can kill plants. And also toxic metals that will come in these like acid drainage. Um, it can contaminate streams and groundwater at like a really wide distance around. So it can cause huge impacts to the surrounding communities and ecosystems. Mining operations can also cause soil and sediment erosion. And when that erosion happens, it can also make surface water quality worse um, just because of that, um, you know, sediment going in there. And then tailings ponds, they can also contaminate groundwater and leach toxic substances. So 
This is especially a problem, like, if you have tailings ponds, like, they just kind of sit out there in the environment. And when rainfall is high, if, um, if they flood, basically, it can create really bad environmental consequences. So in short, there are lots of ways that mining can fuck up the water around mines. Mines also fuck up air quality, uh, not surprisingly. So the first way that this happens is like, I don't know, when you're building a mine, you're like digging and exploding shit, <laughs> transporting stuff. You're, you're really disturbing the earth and that brings particulates into the air. Um, and a lot of that stuff is toxic. And so it can be really bad for air pollution um, around. We mentioned in the first part that the main source of mercury pollution is gold mining. And that's that process that causes it. Gas emissions um, from fuel combustion, from the things that produce those explosions, and also from mineral processing can also contribute to air pollution. So there's a lot of ways that mines can also cause air pollution. Then there are other environmental impacts. So um, mining, and especially open pit mining, it involves the destruction of habitats, which can significantly impact wildlife and ecosystems. So if you're clearing like an area of rainforest, you might be really threatening like local gorilla populations or something like that. And even if you're not, you're maybe disturbing local communities, you're maybe disturbing, um, you know, birds and other kinds of animals that are in the area and plant life. Uh, mining can also contaminate the soil in the surrounding area, which can, um, I mean, first of all, bad for the soil, but secondly, can also cause harm to nearby farmers. And especially in communities where people are subsistence farming, that can be a huge issue as well. I've also just written climate change on here because <laughs> mining is also energy intensive. Um, another thing to keep note of, um, this isn't something that happens in electronics um, raw material production yet, but is likely to start in the next three to five years, is something called deep sea mining. And it's what it sounds like. And that would be really bad um, because we really don't even know yet what is like in the deep sea. Um, every time scientists look there, they find a bunch of new species. And uh, deep sea mining could irreparably destroy these ecosystems as well. So it's not awesome. Would it be worse than bottom trawling or is it kind of the same problem? Wow, they're both bad. It's so hard to answer this question. Um, I don't know a lot about deep sea mining, but my my instinct is if there was like a problem with deep sea mining, like if there was, um, if it was not managed well, it could be much worse than bottom trawling. But I don't know. It's an interesting question, though. So the other thing I want to talk about um, is, so you have mining where you're taking stuff out of the ground, but you also have to refine it to make it into something useful. And with rare earths, that process creates um, toxic and radioactive waste, which is always the thing you want to hear about. <laughs> so that's basically because, um, if you'll remember from last episode, we talked about rare earth minerals. They're like a collection of 17 substances that are really useful for doing everything from making your phone vibrate to creating pretty colors and screens and things like that. Rare earth minerals always occur alongside the radioactive elements thorium and uranium, and it's really complicated to actually separate them safely. Um, so radioactive waste is a huge problem. I want to read an article, um, an excerpt from an article from Mother Jones, because I think they explain it better than I could. Miners use heavy machinery to reach the raw ore, which contains anywhere between 3 and 9% rare earths, depending on the deposit. And then the ore is taken to a refinery and cracked, which is a process where workers use sulfuric acid to make a liquid stew of sorts. 
The process is also hugely water and energy intensive, requiring a continuous 49 megawatts, um, which is enough to power 50,000 homes um, and two Olympic swimming pools worth of water every day. Workers then boil off the liquid and separate out the rare earths from rock and radioactive elements. This is where things get dangerous. Companies must take precautions. (laughs) Companies must take precautions so that workers aren't exposed to radiation. If the tailing ponds where the radioactive elements aren't properly, permanently stored um, are improperly lined, then they can leach into the groundwater. And if they're not covered properly, the slurry could dry and escape as dust. And this radioactive waste must be stored for an incomprehensibly long time. The half-life of thorium is about 14 billion years, and uranium's is up to 4.5 billion years. Reminder, Earth itself is 4.5 billion years old. So yeah, radioactive waste, it's hard to deal with. <laughs> Could we like do that Futurama episode where we just blast something into the sun? Would that be a good way to get rid of it? <laughs> I've made that suggestion before and the answer was no, <laughs> but this is a different one. So can we blast this into the sun? I have to assume no, but I don't know. <laughs> what was just described there is like this incredibly dangerous and complicated process that has huge implications if you fuck it up. So you'll be really happy to hear that in many places where rare earth refining occurs, environmental laws are weak and poorly enforced, which allows companies to process these elements on the cheap. (laughs) That's definitely what you want when there's radioactive stuff involved. (laughs) Oh, I don't like this story at all, Kristen. (laughs) So yeah, um, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, most of China's rare earth mines are clustered around the Baotu region of Inner Mongolia. And uh, communities around one mine blame at least 66 cancer deaths on leaked radioactive waste. And locals frequently complain of hair and teeth falling out. That's like a regular nightmare for most people. Yeah. Another example is the former Mitsubishi chemical refinery in Bukit Marah, which is in Malaysia. And I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. I'm sorry. And it was run by a subsidiary of Mitsubishi. So this is like, I had never heard of this before, but um, it was because Mitsubishi sort of like quietly closed the refinery. But villagers there blamed the mine for birth defects and eight leukemia deaths. um, And they, activism in the 90s convinced Mitsubishi to close the factory and to spend about $100 million cleaning up the mine site. It must have been real bad if they were willing to... It must have been real bad. ...to like shell out and do the right thing and shut it down. Like, I can't even imagine... Because most companies will let a lot of stuff slide. So for them to go ahead and shut that down, I'm like, wow, like it must not have been good at all. Yeah. And actually in 2010, um, a local newspaper went to the dump site and they found 80,000 drums containing 4.2 million gallons gallons of thorium hydroxide, which is a radioactive substance. So yeah, it's not great. So the mine site there is closed, but nothing ever changes because there's an Australian mining company called uh, Linas uh, that has opened a refinery in a nearby town in Malaysia. So the process starts once more. They claim that they have better safety regulations, but I don't know how much stock I put in that. So China actually controls 80% of the global output of rare earth elements, um, which is another part of the issue. And I had mentioned in the first episode that um, they initially thought rare earth elements were rare um, and now have found that they're not so much. 
And uh, actually, in until the 1990s, there was only one mine that um, that processed uh, rare earth elements uh, in the entire world, and it was called the Mountain Pass Mine, and it existed in California. I think this is kind of an interesting story, and it tells you um, like the connection between globalization and the environment, uh, because Mountain Pass was opened in the 50s, and it was for a long time, the only rare earths element uh, mine in the world. But it had to close in 2002 because environmental regulations made um, American rare earths more expensive than those that were mined elsewhere. And there was actually an attempt to revive the Mountain Pass mine. It was this whole, like, you know, revive American industry kind of initiative starting in 2008. Um, But the company that started it ran into financial difficulties, and ultimately the mine was sold to a Chinese-backed consortium in 2014. What? (laughs) Yeah. So Mountain Pass still exists, but it's all of the minerals there are exported for processing in China now. Globalization. (laughs) Well, that backfired heavily. Yeah. But it was like, really, the mine closed because environmental regulations, which are a great thing, um, like if you're actually protecting the environment at these mine sites, which they're not doing in many places around the world because, um, you know, the laws aren't stringent enough, which is understandable in like a developing country where, um, you know, there's not a lot of state capacity or like, there's a lot of pressure that can come from big mining companies because you want to be able to provide jobs for people. Like it's an understandable problem, but uh, it really makes it impossible to to run an environmental mine. Um, and that's something that we as a society need to fix. So yeah, mining is real bad for the environment and there's radioactive waste everywhere. <laughs> is the first half of this episode. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about e-waste. So e-waste is also called electronic waste um, and we produce a lot of it. So according to the UN, uh, we have produced approximately 54 million tons of e-waste in 2019, which is, to me, just an incomprehensibly high number. Like, I thought you were going to say know. in the last, like, 10 years or since no, the beginning. No, last year. Of- <laughs> oh, ah, I, oh, I thought it was going to be since we started producing e-waste. <laughs> ah. I know. And uh, that figure is set to double by 2050. So like annually, we'll be producing over 100 million tons of e-waste a year if we don't get our shit together. Is there even the ability for us to manufacture that much e-waste to be discarded? Like surely at some point we have to start recycling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One would hope. But yeah, up to uh, up to nine or we can just start mining the seas, which apparently what we're going to do instead. But ah. So yeah, up to 90% of the world's e-waste is illegally dumped or traded according to uh, the UN Environment Program. So like it's not, it's not getting responsibly disposed of. And the e-waste problem has two intersecting causes, and we're going to talk about both of them. So the first is the short lifespan of electronics, which means that we're throwing out a lot of electronics. And related to that, the fact that we don't recycle most electronics. So If we fixed either of those problems, it would get a lot better. Um, Ideally, we should fix both. So let's talk about the short lifespan of electronics. Consumer electronics are geared towards basically selling us products that we have to replace every couple of years rather than providing something that's meant to last. This isn't something I think that will be new to anybody. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But many electronics are designed to be unfixable. They're made really difficult to open. 
if you are able to open it, components are often like either glued or fused together. And they now actually like incorporate different components together. So it's really hard to replace an individual component because, oh God, I don't know what's in computers, but like your motherboard is also this other thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Laptops are especially bad for that. Everything is soldered together. So if you're building a computer like a desktop, it's a lot easier to replace like, oh, my video card died, I'll get another one. Or, oh, my hard drive needs to be replaced. But in a laptop, part of the problem is that everyone wants thin, lightweight computers. And it's like, it's not just that the manufacturers want to like, screw the little guy. It's also because the little guy wants things that are they must be designed in such a way that it will only fit together if you like glue these pieces together. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's one of the things um, we'll talk a little bit about the Fairphone at the end. We talked about it a bit last episode. But it's a slightly bulkier phone because it's meant to have everything be replaceable. Whereas like if you get, you know, one of your standard smartphones today, they're going to be a little lighter. So yeah, the the smartphone is like one of the clearest examples of how replaceable electronics are. Um, the average portable electronic device is only like only lasts for two years. With smartphones, um, the incentives are built right in with your mobile phone company. You know, you're invited to upgrade every couple years. Um, it's one of your incentives when you're, you know, with a phone program. And that really sort of enforces this idea that it's disposable. And it also makes it really difficult for phone uh, companies to sign on to sustainability initiatives, because there's not that direct consumer demand, because consumers don't even purchase from the uh, producer. So it's really like what the mobile phone, like the telecoms company cares about. And I mean, I think Bell just wants to watch the world burn, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I would agree with that. I would also say that technology keeps improving at a, at, at a rate that we haven't, like, maybe we've seen it peak now. I don't know. But it also makes it, it means that, oh, my phone that I got three years ago doesn't have 5G capability. So if I want my phone to be usable, like, it used to be like, oh, you'd go visit a website, and every time you visit a website, the website is is heavier. It's like bigger. Your phone has a harder time loading everything. So you need the the phones. Well, you don't need, but it does make your life a lot better if you get the phone that has the capability of loading that website or taking that picture, you know? Like the camera in my phone now compared to the camera in my phone, what, six years ago? There's no comparison. It's <laughs> so I don't know, like we need to hit peak technology as well. And I don't know if like maybe they're throttling technology on purpose to keep you upgrading or what? I don't I genuinely don't know. But yeah, I don't know. Or you could have like a, a modular system where, you know, if you wanted your if you needed your camera to be better in five years or something, you could just replace the camera or something. But yeah, yeah, totally. On the other hand, like I'm kind of okay with not having the latest everything, you know, like if the website loads slightly slower, that's fine. Like I got a an older refurbished iPhone and they were like, well, you're not going to be able to get facial recognition. And I'm like, that's okay. I don't need to open my <laughs> iPhone with my face. That's fine with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's actively a thing I don't want. <laughs> like for me, the last time I upgraded, I got a phone that had a significantly better camera because I was about to go traveling for a year or so. That was kind of an important thing for me. I was like, oh, I can't bring a bulky camera. I, I what, what I can do is my old phone is really slow and has a shitty camera. So 
the motive for me to upgrade was there. Whereas now my phone is a little bit slower, but I'm not about to do anything different with it. So I'm okay waiting for that website for an extra half a second, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you're right that like technology is changing and better features, like people want the best features and that's probably part of it. But I think it's also coming from the industry side as well. Absolutely. It's just a lot of things at play here that make it really complicated. Yeah. There's also like a pretty common practice of um, making warranties conditional on using like in-house repair services, which I just today realized is, at least in the United States, illegal. I would imagine we usually have similar laws, so... I didn't even realize that that wasn't allowed. But uh, yeah, that's a thing that companies will do. And then there's uh, planned obsolescence itself, which is sort of the more egregious version of what we've been talking about. So deliberately designing products to fail prematurely or to become out of date with the aim of selling another product or an upgrade. So Apple and Samsung in 2018 were both fined for that. I think the next big thing is going to be 5G. And it'll be, it might end up being... Well, I already have it. I got faxed. Just kidding. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I don't know. Does it like switch on when I get my second shot? Because I'm still waiting on that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you though. The next thing's 5G. (laughs) It might might be the case where your old technology simply won't work with the the new product that's coming out that'll be standard, you know? So it's like, okay, well, I would love to use this burner phone for my shady activities, but it literally cannot connect to the current networks. I don't know. Like, it's it's all changing so quickly. So please, let's hit peak technology so that we can start fixing the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the peak technology thing, we can't really... The arc of technology is going to do what it's going to do. Um, but what we can <laughs> fix is um, we can implement the right to repair. And so there's been this whole movement around the right to repair in response to this short lifespan of consumer electronics and the planned obsolescence and things like that. The right to repair is fundamentally about giving consumers a choice. So um, the first bit is allowing consumers uh, their choice of repairer. And the second bit is ensuring that there's access to replacement parts, as well as information to maintain existing devices. So one thing that you can do, a lot of what we've talked about so far in these two episodes is like, oh, yeah, all the companies are fucked because mining is bad and also Foxconn produces everything. But (laughs) you can actually you can actually choose uh, companies that support a right to repair. And one option that you have is uh, there's a a nonprofit called iFixit. They're really cool. Uh, So they, they do a couple of things. One of them is they have a website. uh, It's a wiki. So like people... It's like crowd uh, contributed. People basically provide free repair tutorials on a range of products. So a lot of them are repair guides for electronics and appliances. But you can also find guides on like repairing clothing, shoes, kitchenware, and furniture. So I really recommend them. They're a good hub for things. You can also, I mean, YouTube's problematic, but they do have a lot of like do-it-yourself repairs. You can also choose companies that are either that support the right to repair um, or that aren't vocal opponents of the right to repair movement. Apple is probably sort of one of the biggest uh, problem children of the right to repair. They've actually done a lot recently um, in terms of like the environmental impact of e-waste, like introducing recycling programs and stuff, but they're doing it with um, their in-house repair as like the cornerstone of it. So very much not on board with this whole right to repair thing. Whereas like Microsoft seems to be moving in the other direction. 
But I find this really complicated because, I mean, we're not going to talk about privacy in this episode because... uh... No, I was just thinking that though, (laughs) because like we're going to be really hard on Apple here, but I was actually considering switching to iPhone products the next time I'm forced to upgrade because of the privacy thing that's happening right now where they're really taking a hard stand on letting people own their own identities as opposed to every other company out there that's like, no, um, we, we own you. And it's like, oh, I mean, that's t- I guess there's nothing I can do except switch to Apple. But then there's this right to repair issue. I know that's that's one of the things that's really complicated for me because um, so I love the idea of Fairphone. I'm so on board with it. And I think I probably will switch to them next time. But the one drawback for me is that they run on Android. And I don't know, I kind of I kind of like Apple's commitment to privacy. I don't know. It's very complicated for me. <laughs> I'm sure it is for everybody. So I like everybody's got their very specific things that they're looking for in technology. But one of the things you can build into this, I think, is um, how are they on the right to repair? And even if you're not going to switch, you can maybe like contact the company and say that you, you'd appreciate being able to repair from a third-party retailer or that... You would like it if they didn't like glue all their components together so you could easily replace the battery. (laughs) (laughs) I like I like how at no point in this conversation is the solution ever "Mm, just go cold turkey and don't use electronics because they're so ingrained to our society and the world in general that it's not even conceivable for us to offer that, even though it's obviously the most ethical solution. I don't know about that. I don't know what I would do without technology. Like my work is entirely on my computer, uh, which is nice. I can go anywhere I want to and still be working. My screen time in a day, I don't even know what it is because <laughs> I only get reporting on like individual pieces, but like. <laughs> you don't want to think about it. That's what I tell myself. Yeah, I remember years ago uh, going to an optometrist and uh, they like ask how many hours of screen time I had. And at the time, like, I think I sort of sheepishly said like four hours or something like that, knowing that it was actually higher. But today, if I went, it's like, well, how many hours am I awake in a day? I'm looking at a screen most of the time. (laughs) Well, in the last year, especially, like I think people, uh, I I was seeing, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's statistics at the place where I work that show that the, the pandemic launched the online shopping industry and technology in general forward by like 10 years just for usage because people were forced to do everything from home. And it just took that usership that they were expecting for these online technologies and services, and it just vaulted them a decade into the future. And so companies have been scrambling to catch up. And the companies that can are going to be the ones that survive this downturn, which is why my company has been really explaining that to us constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been a great year for Canadian darling Shopify. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's just really interesting because we're talking about all of these issues and at no point is it even feasible for us in the current way that we're living our lives to to be like, abstain. (laughs) Yeah, you can. I mean, it's the same way with like when we were talking about the sugar episode, like you just can't opt out of it. Um, So you just have to do the best you can. What you can do, though, and we'll talk more about, like, what you can do, but, like, use your voice um, either by picking a company that supports a right to repair or vocalizing that you you want a right to repair or also, like, going rogue and repairing on your own, which you can do, um, and uh, there are resources out, 
resources out there like iFixit to help you. Those are things that you can do to extend the life of your your device so you don't need to replace as often and to sort of like retain some control over what you're doing. The other thing that you can do is support legislation on right to repair. That's something that's a conversation in a lot of countries right now. I think the EU actually just implemented it. So the EU is always just always ahead of us on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid EU, making us look bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about e-waste recycling, um, which is the second half of that problem. So first problem is that we're replacing stuff way too much. Second problem is that we're not recycling things. So... Recycling rates are pretty low for electronics, only about 25% of electronics of any kind and only 11% of phones um, are collected for recycling, and only about 17% of electronics are actually recycled. So there's not like the same problem of electronics, well it's not on the same scale where like in plastics like there's a lot of stuff being collected but most of it's not being recycled. Here the problem is like predominantly that people aren't even collecting electronics for recycling. But there is also a problem of what happens when they do get collected in some cases. Um, I'll also note those rare earth minerals uh, that are produced with radioactive waste, they are actually recyclable, but only about 1% currently are being recycled. So there's like a potential to really fix that problem. As we discussed in our very first episode of this podcast, e-waste represents an estimated $55 billion in in value annually, because like these are actually really valuable metals and minerals that are in our electronic devices. You know, it's like gold and stuff. Recycling e-waste potentially could be very lucrative. So the question becomes sort of like, why doesn't it happen more? And the reason is basically, I mean, first of all, that we're not sending a lot of it to collection. And secondly, that recycling electronics is notoriously dangerous. Um, So because of those toxic materials that cause problems when you're mining and manufacturing electronics, uh, that also causes problems when you're recycling them. So it's actually pretty expensive to do it safely and humanely. I think we should make it such that like companies have to recycle. So like you have to do it safely and humanely and it becomes feasible economically, but For now, what ends up happening a fair amount of the time, about a third of the time in the United States and about 16% of the time in Canada, the electronics that are uh, collected for recycling, um, they get exported uh, mostly to Asia through e-waste smuggling and e-waste dumping. Uh, And that's an industry that's worth an estimated just under $4 billion annually. So it's like it's huge and actually one of the top five most profitable organized crime rackets in Asia is like e-waste recycling. Holy shit. Holy (laughs) shit. So it used to be a few years ago that um, if you were looking at e-waste smuggling, it was basically just going to China. Now the story is a little bit more complicated uh, because the Chinese government has increased its enforcement and regulation. So that's like slightly good news. But uh, the practice is now moving to other Asian countries. And uh, informal e-waste recycling, which is sort of like the nicer term for it, um, it mostly occurs in poor communities where workers with no protective equipment are picking apart electronics by hand. And so basically they're like removing, they'll remove the important plastics and metals and then they'll melt them together and that process releases a bunch of toxins into the air. And then they burn the leftovers, which again creates even more airborne toxins. Informal e-waste recycling, it can cause huge health problems for workers and also people in surrounding communities. 
To give you just one example, um, in the Chinese city of Gaiyu, uh, children were found to have higher than average levels of lead in their blood, and that was because recycling was a huge industry there, and it was not being done safely and environmentally soundly. I um I assume a solution to this wouldn't be just making companies have to be responsible for the end life of their products. Yeah, I think that is one uh, like one way to do it. I don't know a lot about the legislation, so I'm hoping we can talk to somebody that's more of an expert on that. But uh, I know in some Canadian provinces, one thing they do is they force um, like a small fee for every um, like electronic piece that falls in like certain categories, and that's supposed to go towards recycling collection. There's also some U.S. states that have required e-waste recycling. I'm not sure what that legislation actually looks like, but that's definitely like a thing that governments could do. Just like with plastics pollution, like put the onus for end of life on the companies instead of on the individuals. That's one solution for sure. Sorry for interrupting you. I'm just like so (laughs) flabbergasted (laughs) and like, what can we do? But I'm like getting ahead of it. (laughs) Well, actually, no, the next thing I've written down is what you can do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I can just read your mind now, I guess. Um, So the first thing that you can do is extend the life of your products. So if everyone kept their phone for an extra year, we could save 2.1 million tons of carbon dioxide every year, which would be the equivalent of keeping a million cars off the roads. So, mm. Well, how long do people keep their phones on average? I think it's about two years. So if everyone kept their phones for three years, we could reduce that. And then if you kept another year after that, if we could keep our phones for five years, ooh, why don't we push it? Let's hit peak technology and just keep our phones for 10 years. (laughs) Love it. Um, So yeah, you could keep your, try to keep your products for as long as you can. Um, One way to do that is when you're buying electronics, uh, look for durability and repairability when you're trying to decide. Um, And then once you have like chosen your electronic, try to extend its lifespan by repairing or replacing components when they break. That iFixit uh, website is a good example of a tool you can use for that. You can also, um, many cities will have repair cafes um, or there will be organizations that host repair events. So you can get involved with one of those. In the UK, the Restart Project is a good organization. Um, And you can also take your device to an independent repair shop. Um, or if you're, if you're, uh, whatever your device is through a company that has like repair options, um, you can do that too. And yeah, you can try fixing it yourself using the tutorials if you want. Uh, so let's say you've extended the life of your device for as long as you can, but you need to get a new one. Um, you can try to go with a secondhand or refurbished electronic. So, um, there are some, issues around this because they're they're built to be so short term in a lot of cases. So if you're buying a secondhand smartphone, uh, one advice piece of advice that I saw was to pick a model that has come out within the last three years to ensure a good battery life, which was advice that made me sad, but (laughs) it kind of defeats the purpose because you're only picking up that phone that's two years old because someone else went and got a new one. So kind of perpetuates the issue. It does, but you're still extending the life a little bit. So, you know, that works. Um, or you could pick like a, a model. If you if you are willing to go to a flip phone, like a non-smartphone, um, those actually last a lot longer. You know, like you could get one of those like old school 
Motorola's and <laughs> do you for like 20 years. Um, so that's one option. Kristen, I feel like this, this ask that you've just made along with reusable toilet paper might be one of the very few things on our show that I will never be ready for. <laughs> I am fully addicted to my phone. Okay, listeners, you have to choose um, reusable toilet paper, handkerchief, or flip phone. <laughs> One of the three. <laughs> no, it's definitely hard. So, um, like, we're stuck with the industry that we have to a certain extent. Um, so, you know, exercise your voice. If you are buying secondhand, just bear in mind that the battery life might suck if you're getting something that's older than three years in a phone. If you're looking for a refurbished laptop or desktop, oftentimes you can get one that's older, but um, I would like do some research on this um, because the guides that were looking at the suggestions were complicated. <laughs> so, um, you know, you should do some research on the individual products you're looking at. Um, you can also, uh, there's an ethical consumer guide that we'll link to in the research notes on how to buy secondhand technology to help you. Okay, so let's say you've extended the life the lifespan of your phone. You don't want to buy used or refurbished um, for whatever reason. The other thing you can do is support leading brands. So if you are buying new, choose a company that's a leader on ethical issues that matter to you. Um, some of the things you might want to think about. First one is supply chain transparency. So that'd be questions like, do they publish a list of suppliers on their website? You should be able to find that. Do they have a supplier code of conduct on their website? And how robust is it? Like, are they doing audits and things like that? If they don't have any of that on their website, it's a sign that they are not doing super well on uh, uh, supply chain ethics. End of life. Uh, does this company take responsibility for the product at its end of life? Can you bring it back to them and they'll do something with it when you're done with it? Um, do they have an e-waste recycling program and how good is it? Conflict minerals, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, are they doing due diligence to make sure that their, that their minerals are not coming from conflict zones? Um, are they actively involved in conflict-free initiatives in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Another issue that you might care about that you might want to look at is tax justice. Is this company paying their fair share of tax? At this point, you might wonder, is there any company that I can buy from? But you do your <laughs> it's best. It's like you were reading my mind. I was like waiting for a pause so I could be like, mm, <laughs> this doesn't sound like, this sounds like a fantasy, Kristen. Stop, uh, <laughs> stop pretending. I was going to say there are some companies that are doing fairly well on all of these things until you get to tax justice. Oh, God. The <laughs> but no, um, like, there are relative leaders and laggards in each section. So, you know, balance it against what you care about most. It's quite the wish list. Yeah. And the last one, if we're doing <laughs> a wish list, um, the one that we cannot forget is climate change. Does this company <laughs> have a carbon neutrality target? Do they ensure... Do they actually have a concrete plan to get to carbon neutrality? And is it like carbon neutrality plans are not great if all they're based on is carbon offsets, because as we told you in that episode, carbon offsets are kind of a scam. <laughs> and do these companies actually measure their carbon as well? Because that's a really important um, first step if you're going to try to get to net neutral. All right. So those are some things you can think about. I'm sure there are more. Oh, actually, one one example that was good. I came across a couple of uh, ethical rankings, and BlackBerry kept rating highly on them. But it was kind of funny because um, the like one X that BlackBerry had for the Good Shoppers Guide was like armaments. It's like, well, yeah, 
<laughs> oh my sure God. they do that but that might be like the single thing you really don't want them to be involved with so it might matter for you. <laughs> <laughs> what are they what you know what that's a whole other thing never mind <laughs> yeah so for smartphones uh Fairphone is like, there's actually like a super straightforward answer for you, unless you include privacy and, and, and uh, the fact that it's on Android. But if you, if you take that away, Fairphone is clearly the best smartphone that you can purchase. Um, they do a really good job with supply chain traceability. Um, they're like involved in conflict-free initiatives. They are super pro repairability. That's like their whole thing. And they're, they're always trying to improve as much as they can. So Fairphone is a really good option. Um, the only downside is that it's operating system. I mean, I don't really know how you get around this. Like, you either are okay with Android or you're not, you know? I, I think that there might be a way to get, like, maybe a hacked version of iPhone <laughs> onto it. But that would be, oh, huge pain in the ass and probably mess up quite a bit of your functionality unless you're really good at this sort of thing. I don't know. Tweet us if you know the answer to that. I am really bad at software. I'm more of a hardware person. Yeah, and I don't even really know. Like, you're stuck with a big company either way, right? Like, there are basically just the two operating systems, aren't there? Microsoft has an operating system, because of course they do. Uh, and also, <laughs> you can still get, I think you can still get like a Linux-based system, but I can't remember what it's called for phones. But I'm sure that there is like a Linux-based version, which maybe would be the most ethical if you could get that on your Fairphone. I don't know. Again, I cannot stress how little I know about software. So at us if you'd like to inform me because I am super curious. I just don't care enough to learn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It seemed like way too much to bring into this episode. So I didn't do any research and... Quite frankly, I am the closest thing there can be to a Luddite in today's society. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can look at different ethical ratings. Um, Good Shopping Guide is one example, and Ethical Consumer is another um, to help you make your decision. Know the Chain is also an organization that looks at um, supply chain behavior around uh, forced labor. So you can look at their information technology um, section on, on their website if you're curious about that as well. All right. Um, so let's say you've got your device um, and you're trying to figure out what to do with it because it is now dead. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, if your electronics are still working, um, first of all, consider if you could just keep using it for a little longer by repairing it or by just, you know, dealing with the fact that a certain feature isn't maybe as good as you'd like. But if you're really not okay with it for whatever reason, um, consider either selling it or giving it to somebody that you know so that you can extend the use of that product. If you can still turn on your device, um, if it's a smartphone, you can send it into Fairphone regardless of what kind it is. I swear this isn't just an advertisement for Fairphone. They're just really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had an affiliate program with them. We would get so much money from this episode. <laughs> I know, mention them so much. But no, like any type of phone you have, if, as long as it still turns on, you can send it to Fairphone and they'll give you a discount. Um, so that's pretty cool. Other companies have similar programs, but it's usually only like um, Apple to Apple or like Microsoft to Microsoft or whatever. So look into that, like whether your company that produced your product has an in-house recycling program. Sometimes they'll also give you a, a discount on new items. Um, and you can also look for electronic recycling programs uh, 
Sometimes your municipality might run them. So look at to see if there's a government one. There are often community ones as well. Um, in some places, Oxfam will recycle e-waste. In some cases, zoos will recover e-waste. Um, so it really depends on what community you're in, but just uh, give it a few searches and you'll eventually find one. The last thing that you can do, as we always say, is get political. So you can ask for right to repair legislation. Um, I'll link to some petitions for all of these things on our research note. Um, you can also support legislation that requires manufacturers to recycle e-waste. Another thing you can do is to ask your government to join the Basel Ban am Amendment, and it basically would ban the export of hazardous e-waste to developing countries. So you'd be able to help get rid of that e-waste dumping problem that is causing health conditions in several different places. And you can also sign a petition calling for a moratorium to ban deep sea mining because we should really stop that problem before it starts. <laughs> and that is, I think, it for me. Um, uh, I think the most upsetting thing for me about electronics is that there's nothing you can do about it, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like with yeah. clothing, like. There's a really simple solution, like you just kind of disengage from fast fashion. You can kind of slowly do that. Thrift stores are super easy. You know, pants are pants, right? Yeah. <laughs> they fundamentally do the same thing. Yeah, like with the <laughs> seafood industry, you could stop eating seafood. But there's no way for me personally anyways to disengage from the electronics industry. Like I can buy less, I can extend the life of my product, but in the end, there's no way I can just go cold turkey. Yeah, and like if you were going to, like even building your own desktop computer requires so much more knowledge than buying a pair of pants at a thrift store, you know? Yeah, and I mean, even building a, but building that desktop is still rife with all of the issues that you've already talked about. So it's not even like that's a solution except for the fact that you don't have to throw the whole thing away when one thing breaks. But there's been so many issues we've, we've talked about in these two episodes <laughs> that it's like, well, okay, I guess one thing out of a thousand is better than nothing, but it's not a solution. Yeah. So like, I mean, I guess there like there are small things you can do, you know, you can build your own desktop to make sure that your computer is repairable. You can you can just deal with your phone for slightly longer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's all those things that you just talked about, especially the legislation. But yeah, ultimately, it's not an industry you can disengage from, which is, I think, what makes it almost unique in when it comes to the worst things we've talked about. <laughs> Yeah, it's a combination of impossible to disengage from, which is like true of some other things like, you know, food is very difficult to disengage from, especially the staples. <laughs> but like, it's, it's easy to understand what a tomato is fundamentally, it is not easy to understand what the fuck is in a computer, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it just I think it just makes it a one level more difficult to dis like, I guess you can't disengage, but to like, engage in a more responsible way, because it's not as though it's not as though I could even if I had a repairable computer, I would have to go to somebody smarter than me or follow a tutorial to fix something, you know? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's big. Uh, thank you so much for tackling this topic. I cannot tell you how interesting this has been for me. Like, I, I know that it, I've, I've been, I was just like, oh, it's more upsetting than anything else we've done. But it's also, honestly, I think this is one of the most interesting ones we've done for, for me personally, anyways. Yeah, I had a good time. Um, I'm upset about mining, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm upset about basically everything, but I was really like 
captivated the whole time. So thank you for being my professor on this one. <laughs> I feel like I was taking an <laughs> online class that I was just like, I was like, oh, I should be taking notes. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you did a really good job. And I am excited to explore further. I know that you originally wanted to do just one episode for this, and it just turned out to be like way too big. So thank you for taking on that extra work and making this a bit a mini series because I, I, I think it's important to talk about. So Aww, appreciate thanks. you. <laughs> and next episode, we're going to have a fun story about activism and conflict minerals, which I think will be relatively optimistic. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, um, I guess maybe we should just take a second to talk about our challenges, which was to try and recycle some electronics. Did that work out for you? Did you do it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was so swamped with research that uh, I did not even get to it. But I mean, fair. I did do it so I can carry us a little bit. Um, Love it. Finally. <laughs> I, I rounded up a bunch of electronics from work, including like an old really big router um, and server and stuff. And like, yeah, we just had to upgrade everything. We really did have to upgrade everything. It was from like the early 2000s and it was very painful <laughs> to do anything. But I took all of those things from work, plus a few things I had lying around at home, like cables that don't work anymore, um, stuff like that. And I took them to the recycling center in Vancouver and I dropped them off there. What happens to them now? I couldn't possibly say. So whether or not it was the right thing to do, I don't know. It was kind of a pain in the ass, so I understand why. I don't know. Just I feel like I don't know what would be more convenient. I know that London Drugs takes some electronics recycling at some locations, so I did drop off some things there. They take like appliances and batteries and light bulbs, but it's like, oh god, it's like a thing to recycle them. It's it's not as easy as just putting out the trash, you know. It's true, yeah. I would really like it if um I know some some like apartment buildings do this. I think it's like individuals organizing it, but like where you have the really separated recycling. Our building we separate like plastics and paper products and compost. Obviously, it'd be weird if you put compost in the things. Um, but <laughs> But like we don't do anything beyond that. Um, it'd be nice to be able to put like I have batteries that I, they just sit in a tin can because I haven't figured out where to take them yet. Should be easier. We're going to do a recycling episode at some point. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> and I'm going to try to find somebody who's an expert on e-waste to talk to um, so that we can get like I really tried to find out like how do you tell whether you're recycling well with e-waste and I just couldn't find anything on it. So hopefully. We'll be able to find somebody that can tell people some good tips. If you're an expert on e-waste, please hit us up. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know more personally. I know I would. You won't be e-wasting our time. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> I think I've just been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you for making it to the end. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell... We, we, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad we don't do bloopers anymore. That was a good one. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure that... I, we only don't do them because we're so perfect, Kristen. I'm sure that we'll have bloopers in all four of these.